0: Most Christians either have no interest in how the local church is governed or they have an intense interest in how the local church is governed. People usually start with no interest because when you get saved, you're really interested in Jesus and you're not worried about church bylaws. But over time, most Christians learn that the administration of the church is important. And usually they learn this the hard way because their church experiences crisis or their leaders make bad decisions And when that happens, church members start asking a lot of questions. Who are the leaders? How can we fix this? And if they don't get satisfactory answers, often people leave that church and go to a new one. And when they come to the new church, they come in the door asking questions about church government because they don't want to relive the bad experience they just had. And that's how they learn that church government matters. But friends, we shouldn't have to go through a crisis to learn that church government matters. Because the Bible tells us a lot about church government, and the Bible never wastes time on unimportant subjects. So if the Bible describes church government, God intends for us to pay attention to it. And this morning, we're going to talk about church government as we look at two passages from the pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And as we look at these passages, we're going to learn about the primary leaders of the local church, Who are most commonly called elders? And we're going to ask three questions today. First, what is an elder? Second, who is an elder? And third, what does an elder do? So we begin with our first point, what is an elder? The question comes up almost immediately in the letter to Titus. If you've got a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 1 and let's start reading Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant, or literally in Greek, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Our author is Paul, and Paul tells us two things about himself. First, he is an apostle. He is Jesus' designated and authoritative spokesman. But second, even though he has this important office, Paul doesn't see himself as a Lord who is to be obeyed. Instead, he says, he's a slave of God. God reigns and Paul doesn't, and that is a very good mindset for a church leader to have. Now, Paul says some very important things in the next few verses, which we'll return to. But now jump to verse 4. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul is writing to Titus, and Paul greets him in the Lord. Who's Titus? Well, Titus was another long-term ministry associate of Paul, uh, just like Timothy. And 2 Corinthians tells us that Titus helped Paul by occasionally going to local churches where Paul was no longer present and helping them fix things on Paul's behalf. And that's what's going on here. Look at verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Here's the situation. At some point, Paul and Timothy went to the island of Crete, or Paul and Titus. When Paul and Titus went to Crete, we don't know. But Paul preached the gospel on this island, and he planted churches throughout the towns of Crete. And then Paul left to continue his work elsewhere. Chapter 3 says Paul is now in western Greece when he writes this. But while Paul has gone on to Greece, he left Titus behind. Because there's a bunch of brand new Christians in Crete, and a bunch of brand new churches, and somebody's got to help them grow. And that's Titus's job. He is to put what remained into order. He is to make sure that these churches become fully established and operate the way that they should. And for that purpose, Paul tells Titus appoint elders in every town. So what is an elder? When the word elder appears near the word church in the New Testament, it's referring to an office of leadership in the local church. And that's what Paul's got in mind here. Titus is to appoint local leaders for local churches. And he calls these leaders elders, or literally in Greek, old men. Now, while elder is the most common term to describe church leaders in the New Testament, it's not the only term. Sometimes they're referred to with various verbs meaning to lead or preach. Sometimes they're called overseers. The King James translates that term bishop. And in Ephesians 4, uh, church leaders are referred to as shepherds or pastors. So we've got these various terms. You'll notice that I did not mention the term deacon. We'll talk about deacons next week. But deacons are not authoritative leaders in the local church. Rather, deacons are publicly recognized servants who help the leaders. But what we see is we've got church leaders called elder, overseer, and pastor. Do these different terms suggest different levels of church leadership, as the Catholics teach? No. And we know that based on the way the Bible uses these terms. The Bible tells us very clearly that the elders are the overseers who are the pastors. There is only one office of leadership in the local church which is described by all of these different terms. Let me prove this to you quickly. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So Peter speaks to elders, and then he tells them to shepherd the flock, to pastor it, And then he tells them to exercise oversight, to be overseers. So he calls the elders pastors and overseers. See the same thing in Acts 20. Paul calls the elders of the church together, and he says to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So again, he calls elders overseers, and they're to watch over a flock. That's shepherding language. That's pastoring. In fact, in the passages we're going to look at today, Paul speaks about the qualifications of leaders. And in one one list, he calls them elders, and the other, he calls them overseers. So again and again, we see that these various terms are used interchangeably to describe just one office of church leadership, which is most frequently called elder. So the elders are the church's pastors and overseers. Now, Paul tells Titus that the churches on Crete need some elders. Okay? How many elders does each church need? Well, Paul commands Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. And we need to understand that it's very unlikely here that Paul would go to a town and plant multiple churches. That's not how Paul worked. We know from the rest of the Bible. No, each town would have one church. And each church would have multiple elders. We find this same idea throughout the New Testament. For instance, 1 Thessalonians is addressed to the church, singular, of the Thessalonians. But 1 Thessalonians 5 tells that one church to respect those, plural, who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Likewise, Acts 14.23 says, "...they appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular." Acts 15.4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, singular, and the apostles and elders, plural. Acts 20.17, he called the elders, plural, of the church, singular. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Friends, the pattern is clear. One church, multiple elders. Even in new churches, like the churches on Crete, In fact, the Thessalonian church had the benefit of Paul's instruction for only something like two or three weeks, and yet even in a young church like that, there were multiple elders. So, all churches should strive for plural eldership. Now, you might not like that, because maybe you've had a bad experience in a church led by multiple elders. Or perhaps you say, well, my business sense tells me this just sounds very inefficient. But friends, we've got to remember that our experience is not the arbiter of truth. The local church belongs to Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says Jesus is the head of the body of the church. And Jesus, speaking by his apostles, has prescribed this form of church government. So plural eldership it is. Now, understand that biblically speaking, the elders are formally equal. There is no biblical passage that says, there shall be one elder whose opinion outweighs the other. We've got to remember that, especially if we serve as an elder. I've seen this go wrong twice so far. Hopefully, I don't see it go wrong again. Uh, Once was with a man who was a paid pastor, and once was with a man who was not. And in both cases, the, the, the man who thought he was in charge thought his word was final And all the other elders were just there in an advisory capacity. Friends, that is not true plural eldership. Plural eldership is not one man rule cloaked by several yes men. No. Plural eldership means that all of the elders elder together. They collectively discharge the pastoral oversight and ministry of the church. Now, In any group of people, you will have leaders who emerge within that group and among that group. But any leadership that emerges from within the elders is only an informal issue of personal influence and group dynamics. It is not formal. There is no lead elder who gets absolute deference. No. Every elder should speak up and vote in line with his conscience, no matter the seniority or public visibility of any other elder who disagrees with him. Acts 20 says, The Holy Spirit has made the elders overseers, and we do an injustice to the church and violence to the will of Christ if we claim to practice plural eldership, which at the end of the day means one person decides while everyone else nods their head. Every elder must listen to every other elder and sincerely consider their viewpoint as we collectively lead the church. The elders should strive for consensus in decision-making. Now, sometimes we cannot form consensus and have to vote. When that happens, for the sake of the unity of the church, elders who hold minority positions on a question either need to submit to the majority, or if they can't do that without violating their conscience, they need to resign from the board. But even then, an elder should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Only when an elder board goes bad, when it collectively and unrepentantly chooses to lead the church in a manner contrary to Christ's word, should an elder publicly blow a whistle. And there are times when that's necessary. Let's pray that that never, ever happens here. But the elders are to work together in making decisions. Now, that means that each elder doesn't always get our own way. And I've got to tell you, that's a good thing. There have been times in the life of this church when I've been outvoted, and usually a few weeks later, I'm thankful for it because the other guys usually see situations like that clearer than I do. That's why I was in the minority. And that's how it's supposed to be. So here we have a plurality of equal elders who collectively discharge the pastoral ministry of the church. And this is biblical, and it's wise. Because the Proverbs say, in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. More opinions ought to produce more wisdom, and more guardians ought to produce more accountability. But how many elders should we have exactly? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a set number. It doesn't tell us we need one elder for every ten families or something like that. This is a question of prudence. We just need to make sure we always have more than one elder if we can. And we don't ever want to appoint men who do not meet the qualifications for eldership that we're about to look at just to satisfy some arbitrary quota. So, to summarize, an elder is a pastor, an overseer, and a leader in the local church who serves alongside other equal elders. But we come now to our second question Who is an elder? Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, who should he appoint? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, we saw that elders have to be biologically male because God has ordained the local church to have male leadership. But now we learn that not just any man can serve as an elder because the eldership is a high calling that is reserved only for qualified men. And Paul now details the qualifications of eldership in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. I want to start by reading these passages And as I read them, I want you to listen to how similar they sound. Titus 1, verse 5. Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Compare this to 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. These lists are similar. Between them, we've got something like 26 traits that should characterize the elder. How should we understand these qualifications? They can be basically divided into five groups. First, we've got the most general qualification for the elder, he must be above reproach. What's that mean? Generally, and with respect to the rest of the qualifications, The elder's current life should be free from obvious defects. Now, this doesn't mean sinlessness. If above reproach meant sinlessness, the only person who could be an elder would be Jesus, right? I've got to tell you, your elders still sin. We have not yet been glorified. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we fail more than we would like in thought, word, and deed. We sin. And yet, elders are to be above reproach. So when does sin make someone not above reproach? Well, sometimes the commission of a single outrageous sin can disqualify a man from the eldership. But outside of an outrageous sin like that, the commission of one sin or even periodic failure does not disqualify a man. Rather, the issue is what 1 Timothy 5.20 calls persisting in sin. That's the standard Paul gives for issuing a public rebuke to an elder. And when an elder capitulates to sin in a long-term way and rationalizes it without repentance, then a man is no longer above reproach. The elder's life must be free from such a true charge. That's the standard. The second group of qualifications relate to the elder's family life. First, he must be the husband of one wife. What's that mean? Some people say this means that an elder must be married. Uh, I think this is unlikely because any standard that would disqualify Jesus and Paul from leading a church is probably not correct, right? Um, And Jesus and Paul were single. Uh, Moreover, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's singleness, not marriage, that makes a person more able to engage in ministry. So I don't think elders have to be married here. Okay, well, other people look at this and they say, well, what this means is Paul is prohibiting polygamists or divorced men or widowers who remarry from serving as elders. But if that was Paul's only concern here, I think he would spell that out more clearly. Now, this qualification does implicate issues like polygamy and divorce, but that is not its only function. I think this qualification simply means that the elder must be characterized by fidelity and exclusivity in his marriage if he's married. He should not be characterized by adultery, either sexually or emotionally. He should not be leering at other women and coveting other men's wives. I would further say here that I do not think a widower who remarries is disqualified here. Because Romans 7 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Timothy 5 suggest that marriage terminates with the death of a spouse. So if a widower remarries, he is not sinning or becoming a two-woman man. However, a polygamist is disqualified by this qualification. And a divorced man may be disqualified by this qualification. God hates divorce. That was not his intent for marriage. Although, Matthew 5, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, grant narrow biblical grounds for divorce, and I think confer a right to remarry on the aggrieved spouse. And where there is divorce for unbiblical grounds, and where there is remarriage, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that constitutes adultery. That would make you a two-woman man. I think that would disqualify a man. So, speaking for myself, I would not vote to nominate a man to the eldership who was divorced after his conversion for unbiblical grounds, especially if he then remarried. I could see myself voting for a man to serve in the eldership who was divorced for biblical reasons or whose divorce happened before his conversion. But I have to say I would do so only with great trepidation. I would be asking a ton of questions about the divorce, and I really want to see how he talked about it. And I would be looking for a very long-term serious track record of repentance and obedience about what the Bible says concerning divorce and remarriage. Having talked to the other elders, I know they would be just as searching, if not more so, on this issue than what I just said. And I think it's very possible that as a council of elders, we would choose not to nominate any divorced man to the eldership. But again, I think this qualification is about more than divorce. It's primarily about a man's current fidelity to his wife if he has one. Beyond marital fidelity, Paul establishes additional qualifications for elders' home lives, particularly about their parenting. Now again, I don't think Paul here is requiring elders to have children. For the same reason, I don't think he's requiring them to have wives. But if a man does have children, then his parenting is fair game. I also understand these parenting qualifications to apply only to those children who are living under the elder's roof, because these qualifications are about a man's ability to exercise authority. And children who are no longer home are no longer functionally under their father's authority. So, how must an elder parent? Titus 1 says that an elder's children must be believers. The Greek word translated believers by the ESV is pistos. And pistos can mean being a believer, but often it just means something like faithful or dutiful. Here I understand pistos to mean dutiful or obedient rather than believing for two reasons. First, if we understand Paul here to be saying a man is above reproach in his parenting only if his children believe, I think that logically would require him to be able to control whether his children believe. But nowhere in the Bible do we find the idea that parents can control whether their children believe. I've heard some people try to claim certain proverbs as being promises of this, But that's not the case. Proverbs aren't promises, they're just statements that are generally true. Nowhere are we told that good parenting guarantees a child's conversion. So I find this interpretation that elders' children must believe to be unlikely. Second, I would say we should interpret pistos in the context of the other qualifications for an elder's children. And when we look at all the texts together, it sounds like Paul's primary concern is their obedience to their father. For instance, Titus 1 continues, saying, An elder's child must not be debauched or insubordinate. A few years ago, I heard an elder point to this verse to argue that a man was disqualified because he had a rambunctious three-year-old. That is not what this is talking about. Okay? The Greek words here speak of sexual immorality, carousing, and defiance. This is teenage rebellion. And a child with that kind of rebellion is not pissed off. He's certainly not acting like a believer. But more than that, he doesn't even meet the lower standard of showing due respect for his father. He's not pissed off because he's not submissive to his parents, which is the exact way 1 Timothy 3 frames the parenting qualification that the elder, with all dignity, is to keep his children submissive. A father is to be obeyed at home. And that obedience is to be a result of his own personal dignified conduct, not because he domineers his family like a tyrant. That's the picture painted by these qualifications. Now you might be surprised Paul says so much about the home life of an elder, but we shouldn't be. Because in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And friends, i got to tell you, this is profound. I have seen this in the eight years I've been doing ministry to be proven true again and again. Men who serve in the eldership who are unduly permissive at home will be unduly permissive in governing the church. And men who are tyrannical at home will be prone to being tyrannical at church. How a man leads his family has a one-to-one correspondence with how he will lead the church. And that's why family life's important, because it gives a preview of what a man's service as an elder would look like. All right, but now we move on to the third and largest group of qualifications, which relate to the elder's character. Here the traits are framed both negatively and positively. Let's start with the negative ones. The elder must not be arrogant. He can't be so into his own opinions that he won't listen to anybody or God's word. That's how you destroy a church. He must not be a lover of money or greedy for gain. He can't all be about getting cash. He must not be a drunkard. The Bible does not forbid drinking. It forbids drunkenness. So the elder must not be ruled by alcohol and his lifestyle can't be always characterized by drunkenness. He must not be violent, quick-tempered, or quarrelsome. He should not be quick to fly off the handle in a fit of rage. He should not use intimidation in his oversight or be characterized by verbal abuse, much less physical violence. Now, that's not to say that an elder won't encounter conflict. Conflict happens all the time in ministry. And sometimes you've got to be stern in dealing with conflict in ministry. Paul's going to say that in a minute. But church leaders shouldn't seek opportunities to go off on people. Rebuke is a last resort, not an exciting opportunity. Finally, an elder must not be a recent convert. Although the term elder means old man, it's interesting Paul doesn't impose an age requirement. Instead, there's a maturity requirement. Elders must be those who are mature and seasoned in their own church, even if they're not mature and seasoned in years. Now, what constitutes maturity in one church filled with newer converts may not constitute maturity in another church full of veteran saints. So this qualification is relative to the church that an elder serves in. And Paul here says he's concerned about elevating a recent convert uh, to the eldership because that kind of rapid advancement may lead to temptation, the temptation of pride, which is why Satan fell. And Paul doesn't want to see any promising young man go in that direction. So even if we've got promising young men, and thankfully in this church we do, it's good to wait a while before we appoint them to the eldership to give them time to demonstrate the sincerity of their faith and to teach them the humility that comes from following others. So those are the qualifications that are framed negatively. Others are framed positively. An elder must be hospitable. Now, when we talk about hospitality, we often think of entertaining someone or or feeding them. Uh, But when you look at how this word is used in the New Testament and other early Christian writings, what you find that hospitality was, in in their world, was providing shelter, to people that were displaced, to fellow believers who were being persecuted and lost their homes, or who were traveling and had nowhere to go and no money. Think what we did last year during the big freeze. Remember we were shuffling people to different houses to make sure everybody could stay warm? That's hospitality in this sense. And elders should be ready to open their homes and wallets to provide for needy fellow believers. Moreover, elders must be self-controlled and disciplined, These words speak of being in control over your thoughts and body. The elder should not be ruled by rash emotional impulses or by every physical desire. Instead, an elder must love good, be upright, and holy. Elders must love what God loves. We must not play favorites, but we've got to be fair and just and dutiful as we deal with people. And we've got to be committed to loving and serving God. Moreover, an elder must be respectable. He must have a polite demeanor. He must be sober-minded. The elder's got to know which issues are worth dealing with and which are a waste of time, and he's got to be able to think clearly about the issues before him. He must be gentle. This is a very important one. The elder must be willing to suffer insult and yield to others forbearing and not insisting on what is his. He must consider others before himself and be long-suffering in dealing with opponents. And finally, he must be well thought of by outsiders. His post-conversion public life and reputation must be excellent and must not shame Christ before unbelievers. Yes, unbelievers may malign an elder, but when they do so, it's because of his faith and obedience, not because he's guilty of sin. So those are the character qualifications. Now, we might be intimidated by this list because it looks difficult, and in a lot of ways it is, because each of us, including your elders, are fallible sinners. This is very humbling to preach on this. And yet, everything on this list is what every ordinary Christian is called to do. The list doesn't say you've got to be able to run three straight marathons and leap the Astrodome in a single bound. It doesn't say every time you open your mouth, a dozen unbelievers immediately pray to receive Christ. This isn't describing a super saint. The qualifications describe what should be a normal Christian life. And the men who are qualified to be elders are men who are generally living the kind of Christian life that we all ought to live. So it is a high calling, but it's not an impossibly high calling because believers have the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the fourth group of qualification, which is related to an elder's intention. Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The man who serves as an elder has to want to do the job. This might surprise us because there's a notion these days that if you want to hold an office of trust, that means you're too ambitious to safely do it. But that's not true. Paul says it's good to want to be an elder because you can make a huge impact on the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And 1 Timothy 5 says elders who rule well will receive honor in this life. And 1 Peter 5 says they'll receive a crown in eternity. Those are good and desirable things. That's a godly aspiration. And for the elder, it's a necessary aspiration. If you don't want to be an elder, you can't serve. God doesn't conscript people into the eldership. He's only enlisting volunteers. Now, hear me on this. Wanting to serve isn't enough. I've met men who were very eager to put themselves forward for the eldership who otherwise were not qualified. Just because you want to serve doesn't mean that you should. But not wanting to serve, even if you meet the other qualifications, means you can't serve. 1 Peter 5 says, The man who exercises oversight should do so not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Friends, we must not get into the eldership to promote ourselves or to get rich or because the church really needs me even though I don't really want to do this. No, the elders must be eager and willing to do this job and do it well. Finally, we come to the last group of qualifications for the elder related to spiritual gifts. 1 Timothy 3 says the elder must be able to teach. God gives every believer one or more spiritual gifts. And every gift has value, but the eldership is reserved only for men who have the gift of teaching, of being able to effectively communicate doctrinal and spiritual truth. At this point, I've heard people complain, well, that that just doesn't sound fair. There's other spiritual gifts that are important. Why must elders all be teachers? And to that I would say, yes, every spiritual gift matters to the church. But Jesus is Lord of the church, and Jesus commands that the men who serve in the eldership are only to be those men who have the gift of teaching. And we'll see why that is in just a minute. But this is why we require any man who we nominate to the eldership to preach at least one sermon and teach in at least two other contexts in the church. Because the eldership must, by definition, be a collection of men who can teach. And when churches move away from this qualification or from all of these qualifications, it always proves disaster. And unfortunately, this happens all the time. Churches start saying, well, there's other qualifications that matter more than these. You've got to have the right kind of personality to be an elder. You've got to have the right education or the right business sense or financial success or whatever. And when churches start doing that, before long, you don't have a group of men who are collectively exercising pastoral ministry. Instead, now you've got a corporate board of directors who are more interested in the bottom line than the Bible breathing down the neck of the pastoral staff. You wind up with a church governed by pragmatism and not the Bible. And friends, that must never happen here. The only qualifications relevant to the eldership are the ones we just looked at, involving family life, character, intent, and spiritual gifts. And friends, we've got to take these qualifications seriously. In the earliest days of this church, we didn't take them seriously enough. I remember in the first round of elder appointments, Brian might remember this, we just sent an email to the candidates saying, please read the passage and let us know if you think you qualify. That was way inadequate, and we've learned from that. To become an elder here now, let me tell you what the process looks like. First, you have to get the votes of all the current elders. Second, you have to go through about 10 hours or more of intense discussion about your theology and your life. You have to sign our 72-page teaching statement. Then I spend about six hours talking with you about 60 hard questions about doctrine and practice. If you get through that, then we announce your nomination to the church for a four-week period of notice and comment when the other church members should be spending time with you and thinking about whether you're qualified. Then after the feedback on that process happens, then all the elders have to agree that we want you to serve again. Then we vote on you at a members meeting, and after questions and debate, you have to get a two-thirds vote. That's what Daniel had to go through. It's not an easy process and that's the point because this job matters and we've got to take these qualifications seriously because as we see in our final point, the eldership is really important for the life of the church. So here's the last question we're going to look at today. What do elders do? Basically, four things. First, elders are stewards. A steward is a servant who's been entrusted to manage something that belongs to somebody else. Titus 1.7 says an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. The church's elders are stewards. We don't own the church. Jesus does. Ephesians 1 says the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. This church belongs to Jesus, not to the elders, not to the congregation, but to Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus bought the church with his own blood. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we belong to him. And because Christ is our Lord and owner, he has the absolute right to have his will executed in the church. Now Jesus has ascended into heaven. So you might say, well, how do we know what Jesus' will is for the church? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Because Jesus has given us his written word through the apostles. If the church obeys the Bible, we obey Jesus. For this reason, Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.9 that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Elders must be immovably committed to the gospel and the doctrine taught by the apostles. Our decision-making must be governed by what the scriptures say. As elders, it's not like, oh, goody, here's my chance to do what I want to do. No, we don't get to substitute our wisdom for the word of Christ. The elder's primary task is to see that the Bible is implemented and obeyed in the church. This is the fastest way for an elder to disqualify himself. I've seen this a few times, where somebody basically says, I don't care what Jesus says, I know better. I heard a guy one time say, yeah, excommunication never solved anything. Jesus thought it did. And friends, if somebody takes that attitude, it is an immediate disqualification. Because the elder is merely a steward. We're not the Lord of the church. We're we're a slave of God, like Paul says. We're not the Lord. The church is not our plaything. In the same way, elders have legitimate authority only when we say what is consistent with the Bible. If we get up here and say, don't commit adultery. You should listen to that and obey it. Because we're telling you the word of Jesus Christ. But if we get up here and tell you to do something sinful or something outside of the bounds of spiritual authority, you should not listen to it or obey it. Because believing, friends, we're about obeying Jesus. And we must not submit to any instruction that is contrary to Jesus' word. The elders are stewards. 1 Corinthians 4 says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's why Hebrews 13 says your leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The elders are going to have to report to Jesus about the way we served. He's going to judge us, hopefully not in a bad way, but we're going to have to, to be evaluated. Did we manage the church well? Did we shepherd each of you well? It's a weighty thing. We've got to render this accounting because we're just servants. Second, elders nourish the flock. Think of the shepherds in the old days. They made sure the sheep ate, right? In the same way, the shepherds of the church feed the flock. How? Titus 1:9 says: the elder is to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. We nourish the church through teaching. You know, nowadays people want churches to do everything but teach. But Ephesians 4 says the church's teaching ministry is a gift from God that equips the saints for the work of ministry, that builds up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. We need teaching to grow. We need to hear the truths that Paul proclaimed at the start of this chapter. Titus 1.1. He says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness... In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Friends, we need to know God has elected people whom He will save, a people for His own possession, whom He saves by grace through faith, that He wants us to know the truth, to have a true belief in the gospel. That Jesus is God and man. That he died for our sins and rose again. A faith that produces obedient good works. That we have a certain hope of eternal life. God has sworn this. And God doesn't lie. What he's promised, he will perform. That's what we need to hear. To grow and mature and be ready for good works. And that's why we need elders who are qualified. Because Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Elders' lives should testify to the life-changing power of the gospel. And elders are to be apt to teach. Because ultimately the chief task of the elders, beyond obeying Jesus, is to execute the teaching ministry of the church, nourishing the flock. Third, elders guard the flock. You know, ancient shepherds carried a big stick, because sometimes they had to fight wolves. And in the same way, elders sometimes have to fight wolves. Not only must we teach, Paul says in Titus one nine, we must also be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. There are false teachers sent by Satan out there who want to lure you into eternal destruction. But Jesus intends his elders to fend these false teachers off, to rebuke them and expose them and prevent them from harming the church. This is what Paul says in Titus 1.10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's strong language, but it's appropriate because false teaching is really dangerous. Now, Titus is dealing with false teachers from the circumcision party. These guys are heretics, like the heretics in 1 Timothy, teaching Jewish myths, putting Gentiles under the law. They claim to be Christians. But friends, you need to know this. Not everyone who professes Jesus is saved. Not everyone who claims Christ knows him. Sometimes you can detect this by their doctrine, but often you can detect it by their works. Many people claim Christ verbally, but show that they don't belong to him by embracing an evil lifestyle incompatible with the gospel. That's what the false teachers in Crete we're doing. And this is what they were teaching their followers to do. And Paul says people who are embroiled in sin, embracing false doctrine, rejecting Christ's lordship, they cannot please God. They cannot do good works because they have not been purified by the gospel and they remain under God's judgment as defiled and detestable people. Now, why are these false teachers engaging in this evil? Paul says because they want to make money. You know, there's always people out there who will be happy to pay to hear a false spiritual message. But that's an abomination. Paul says the false teachers in Crete represent the worst in Cretan society. A society that one of their own false pagan prophets said was all about deception and laziness and gluttony. And that's what these false teachers are. They're lying to make a quick buck to spend it on their pleasures. That's not funny. It's not cute. It's destructive. It's destructive. Paul says it's upsetting whole families because false teaching kills. In Luke 6, Jesus says everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. And if you follow a false teacher, your life will turn into a life that looks like theirs. And it will destroy you. It will destroy those around you. And it will lead you to eternal ruin because it will show you never really knew the real gospel. But to prevent this happening, God has given the local church elders to guard the flock. And Paul here says the elders are to rebuke the people who are listening to the false teachers sharply. You might say, I thought elders were supposed to be gentle. They are, even towards their opponents, 2 Timothy 2 says. But sometimes, despite all your patience and gentle correction, your opponents still don't repent. They're still hurting the flock. And the time comes to speak a severe word to exercise severe discipline for the health and protection of the body. It's not fun, but this also is a primary function of the elders to keep the leaven of sin and false doctrine out of the local church. Elders guard the flock. Finally, elders direct the flock. We govern the church on a day-to-day basis. 1 Timothy 5.17 says the elders rule over the church. The eldership is a governing position, but it's a unique kind of governance. Our leadership isn't like you know politicians who want to control people and push agendas. Me and Marvin Daniel don't have different agendas that we're trying to figure out how to put on you. That's not how it is. Because 1 Peter 5.3 says that elders are not to be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And that's how elders are to lead, not through intimidation and power, but by being servants, following Jesus' example, who says he came not to be served, but to serve. In the same way, the elders collectively discharge the leadership of the church by serving, by caring for the flock, Acts 20 says, by praying with you when you need it, James 5 says, by counseling and comfort and encouraging, by warning you when we see you in sin, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, by figuring out how the church should obey the Bible, and by teaching and urging obedience to Christ. That's how we lead. Now, the elders' rule is not absolute. We are constrained by the Scriptures, and in this church we are also constrained by the congregation. And I need to say a word about that. The church is not a democracy, and the elders are not charged with carrying out the will of the congregation. We are charged with carrying out the will of Christ. So the congregation is not to rebel, if it doesn't like biblical stances taken by the elders. The congregation is only to check the elders if we are leading the church in an unbiblical way or if we disqualify ourselves or betray Jesus. Then the congregation needs to step in and remove elders. At the same time, our bylaws also specify some questions in this church are decided, ultimately not by the elders but by the congregation. Of course, the elders have some input on these questions. But matters like adding or removing elders, adding or removing members, approving big financial commitments, joining a denomination, or something like that, those matters ultimately rest with the congregation. But outside of those questions reserved for the congregation, the elders lead, and we lead with loving service and obedience to Christ. Now, I just dropped a ton of information on you. Say, what should you take from this sermon today? I want to give you five practical exhortations to close. Number one, if you belong to this church, please pray for your elders. We need your prayers because eldership is a high and difficult calling and because we must give an account to Jesus for how we shepherded you. So please take some time to pray for us and our families, for us to have wisdom, to guard the church and govern it well and to be protected against the schemes of the evil one. Number two, When we nominate a man to the eldership, please participate in the process. It's a very important function of the congregation to help us identify an elder. But it only works if you guys get involved and spend time with our elder candidate. We give four weeks for the church to get to know an elder candidate and give us feedback. And we really need you guys to participate in that. Because we don't want to inadvertently appoint somebody to the eldership who's not qualified. Number three, if you are a man, aspire to the eldership. It's a good thing to strive for. If you're interested in taking up this challenge, begin by praying about these qualifications and examine yourself in light of them. And then talk to the elders. We would love to help some of you men prepare to serve someday in this vital ministry. Number four, all of us, men and women alike, should look at these lists of qualifications for the elder because these are just a good standard for us to strive for in our lives. These lists are an excellent description of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But finally, the number one exhortation we see throughout the New Testament when we talk about elders for the church is this. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 says, Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. If you're a member of this church, respect, obey, and submit to the church's leadership. I know that's not stuff we like to hear in America today. You you know, say, I'm not going to submit to anybody. But Jesus is Lord, and this is how he has set up his church. In his work if you believe that the elders are leading the church in an unbiblical way, what you should not do is complain about it to other church members. Instead, you should come to the elders so we can talk about it with you, pray together, study the Bible together, and make sure that we are all obeying Christ. But if you see us trying to do something that you know is biblical, you need to follow what we're doing. Even if you think, oh, this is going to be unpleasant. This is going to be inconvenient. Because you know what? At the end of the day, the church is to be ruled by Jesus and his work. And sometimes Jesus asks us to do hard and unpleasant things. And helping the church do that is the elder's job. So if you hear us faithfully teaching God's word, listen to what we're saying. Not because we're great or wonderful. Like Paul, we're just slaves of God. But when we faithfully say what the Bible says, we do have the full authority and backing of Jesus behind us. And it's important for God's people to listen and obey Jesus. And frankly, the job of church members is to obey the elders unless we command you to sin. Moreover, friends, eldership is difficult to do well. And aside from the job being difficult, I want, I want to ask you to remember that other than me, who you guys financially compensate in a very generous way, the other men who serve in this ministry do so without uh, financial compensation. For them, this is literally a labor of love. So please don't make our difficult task more difficult with hard-heartedness, or disrespectful opposition, or insubordination. When we've got to waste our time cleaning up that kind of situation, it's not beneficial for the church. Hebrews 13 says, Let the elders keep watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Satan enjoys watching people fight with the elders. We don't want to have that happen here. So please do your part in making sure that's not how the eldership has to spend its time. And instead, we invite you to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow us as we follow Christ.